Hello, and welcome back to After Office Hours. On today's episode, we'll hear from Simon Acampo and myself, Quinn Kinney, on the topic of medical mistrust between minority communities and healthcare providers. Including an interview with Professor Sanjeev Gupta and Jay Pearson, Simon asked what medical mistrust says about the overall structure and quality of our healthcare system. Interviewing Professor Shauna K. Guattari, I delve into what drug use and community care means for trans people navigating healthcare systems. Stay tuned for this week's episode and for new episodes of After Office Hours every two weeks. Welcome to my short but insightful podcast. I am your host, Simon Ocampo, and today we will be talking about the topic of health disparities between different racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. More specifically, we are going to be talking about medical mistrust and distrust within these communities and how this could be a key issue in driving health inequality. First, I want to play this short clip from a discussion between myself, Dr. Jay Pearson, who is an assistant professor of public policy and global health at Duke University, and Dr. Sanjeev Gupta, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at UMass Amherst. In this interview, I asked Dr. Jay Pearson his perspective on this very issue. I wanted to ask sort of regarding something we talked about, how certain ethnic and racial minorities sort of have their kind of like at home, more like cultural remedies when it comes to like healthcare. So my question is, do you see sort of this rhetoric of distrust towards modern healthcare and certain ethnic and racial minorities as a key issue in driving these health inequalities? The short answer to that question is no. That's, that's an excellent question. And again, I don't know how prevalent the use of traditional remedies might be in any of the communities that I study. And the way that we write about it is, it's just one dimension of traditional social cultural orientations that we do argue are important for supporting health. And so I, I, I would suspect that that's not contributing in any large way, but I don't have empirical evidence to support this claim. What I will say to you is, interestingly and ironically enough, one of the hard lessons that we've learned over the course of the past two years and several months now during the pandemic is it's not just populations of color in the United States of America who are distrustful of the medical care system, but um, majority population racial actors, white Americans, particularly those on the far right of the political um, spectrum, are super distrustful. And you know there are at least a dozen or so compelling investigations now that demonstrate that case with dire consequences for, for particularly rural white folks in the central parts of the country, right? Super high COVID-19, well, low vaccination rates, high transmission, contraction, illness, hospitalization, and death rates. That's number one. The second thing I would say to you, Simon, is that the findings in any of the work that I do as a function of stress processes are driven by differences in lived experience. Again, confirming versus disconfirming social relationships and how that manifests as, as, as the disconfirming increases stress and the confirming decreases the stress and the implications that it has for a range of other health outcomes. And all of that stuff happens over the course of a lifetime, right? So it's not physician bias when folks show up and report to their doctor to get treated. That matters. That, that does matter. We don't want that. But, you know, if you beat the crap out of people over their entire life, <laughs> and then you say at the end, if we can just have physicians 
not be prejudiced against these people or for another group of people, eh, I don't know if that's going to make a whole lot of difference. It might matter in terms of the quality of treatment that's provided, but you know, folks show up and they've been stressed to the degree that their immune response is compromised. And that makes them vulnerable to a broad range of, of chronic and degenerative and even infectious disease, right? So got to address those social conditions. So in other words, it, it does matter that, let's say, you know, we have now this evidence of Black people actually, you know, the, the medical profession itself being sort of like at the point of the doctor's visit, exactly. there being problems. But if I understand you correctly, you're saying that even if we fix that, and we should, that that may not be the main thing driving the right. health disparity. Yeah. yeah. So it's the dehumanizing, socialized experience out, out in the world, right, that is altering the underlying physiology and increasing susceptibility to a broad range of health compromising conditions. That's, that's it. And you're absolutely right, doctor. It's, it is absolutely worth it. To, to do good work in physician training and help physicians understand the value of humanizing all human beings. And I think for the record, it's a laudable goal to have high quality health insurance for all members of broader society. But, you know, in England, for instance, they have universal coverage. It's socialized health insurance and care provision, but they still have pronounced gradients across socioeconomic conditions. There they use class. And by ethnic category, they don't use the, the race language the way that we do here in the States. They still have pronounced across those two dimensions. And they even do, in some instances, you know, there have been a number of experiments where we do physician matching, both in the States and um, in England. And, you know, the, the patients report greater satisfaction with the quality of care that's provided, which is beautiful. But the morbidity and the mortality rates don't change at all. So this is an indictment of, again, unfair and unjust social systems more than anything else. Hmm. So I haven't heard that comparison between England. So, but is it still the case that, I mean, can I put it crudely that everyone's better off in England compared to the US because of the universal healthcare in England, but the socioeconomic gradient doesn't go away just because you have Universal. That is absolutely the case. The other thing in many of the European countries is that the wealth and income inequality that we observe here in the States that are just rampant now are compressed in those countries. They've increased there also, but not nearly to the degree or not nearly at the rate nor the magnitude that we've observed here in the States. And in international health comparative investigations, what we've demonstrated is that those economic inequalities, both income and wealth, are the single strongest predictor of population level health at, at the nation state. So that stuff is out the roof here in the States now. It's ridiculous. Yeah, excellent question. So first, I'd just like to talk about why I care about this topic and why I find it interesting. So over the past two years, I have had the opportunity to research this topic several times in different sociology and psychology courses that I've taken. And I initially started my research in early 2020 during the beginning of the pandemic. And much of the work that was coming out at the time was focused on previous health disparities 
and also about the possible disparities that could arise from the COVID-19 pandemic. And I could see this going on in my own community where I live and how this was impacting brown and Latino communities unproportionately. But at the time, there just wasn't enough research or data to properly analyze the issue. But now, two years later, we have a lot more data and research to continue exploring this topic and to try to find solutions. I believe that this topic of health disparities should be something that is discussed more often by many groups, especially within the medical and public health fields, but also in general, the younger generation should be advocating for a more overall equitable healthcare system in the U.S. While researching for this podcast, I found many very interesting articles. The first article that I chose as a reference is an article by Derek Griffith, Eric Berner, Alicia Fair, and Consuelo Wilkins titled Using Mistrust, Distrust, and Low Trust Precisely in Medical Care and Medical Research Advocates Health Equity. In this article, the researchers aim to bring up several points that can help to clear up some of the confusion about what the meaning of mistrust and distrust in medical care is and how it is able to develop and flourish in America. One of the many ideas that the authors talk about is how they want to be clear that the issue of trust is often framed as something that needs to be changed in the individuals who don't trust providers rather than than something that needs to change in providers and organizations that have not demonstrated in the past that they are trustworthy. This is keeping in mind the history of unethical research and public health practices that have occurred in the United States. Events such as the Tuskegee syphilis study are great evidence of unethical and simply disturbing research studies that have been conducted by the United States Public Health Services. This study was conducted from the 30s to the 70s and it was a non-consensual infection of syphilis on a group of nearly 400 African Americans. Even after syphilis treatments became available they were still not offered to these people and this study created a overall major health disparity in this area between these groups of black and brown people. Another important idea that the authors talked about was the idea of trust and how it is a very fragile thing that can be changed, stabilized, or reinforced based on many factors such as recent or past experiences. This is important because it shows that the feelings of mistrust can be reformed and repaired if more action is taken. Lastly, the authors make the point that mistrust and distrust is likely rooted in a unique combination of historical and contemporary factors that vary by individual, population, or other characteristics. It is important to not assume the level of trust based on solely political affiliation, religious affiliation, race, or other socially defined characteristics. This is important because over the past two to three years, we have seen a different side of medical distrust that includes a far broader social demographic that now includes far-right groups and religious groups. Before COVID-19, much of the medical mistrust was assumed to be associated with minority groups such as Black and Latinos in the United States. The authors end the research by discussing how more action needs to be taken in addressing mistrust and distrust in order to promote trust and mitigate the decline of trust in medical care. 
physicians, and as well as medical research. The second research article that I referenced is by Mozin Bazargan, Sharon Cobb, and Shervin Asari titled Discrimination and Medical Mistrust in a Racially and Ethically Diverse Sample of California Adults. In this research article, the researchers conduct a cross-sectional study on a survey conducted on 2,328 California adults. The survey asked several questions regarding if they felt that they trusted medical institutions and physicians to always have their best interests. The results showed that race and ethnicity was significantly associated with the level of medical mistrust. The odds of reporting medical mistrust were 73% higher for non-Hispanic black adults and 49% higher for Hispanic adults when compared to white adults. Perceived discrimination was also found to be associated with higher odds of medical mistrust. Discrimination based on income, insurance, background, and language were all factors for higher odds to experience discrimination. The researchers concluded that perceived discrimination is correlated with medical mistrust, which means that decreasing such discrimination may improve trust in medical clinicians and reduce the disparities in health outcomes. The third article that I referenced is by Alyssa Newman, titled Moving Beyond Mistrust, Centering Institutional Change by Decentering the White Analytical Lens. This article was published in 2022 and focuses on racial health inequalities and medical mistrust that has continued to develop after the arrival of COVID-19 vaccinations. Similarly to my first reference, this article also highlights the importance of shifting the burden of change and blame from the historically exploited and mistreated populations to the medical institutions who have created this mistrust. The author believes that the COVID pandemic has provided new evidence to support the mistrust the minority communities have towards medical institutions and the overall healthcare system in the United States. COVID is just another public health outbreak that falls under the consistent pattern by which suffering is distributed among the vulnerable and away from those who are privileged. This consistent pattern of health disparities rather than equitable health outcomes exposes a deeper institutional problem that expands beyond marginalized populations and calls for a deeper analysis of these institutions. This new lens that the author is proposing will hopefully shine a spotlight on the interconnections between multiple institutions that are widely regarded as untrustworthy and call for institutional change. So over the course of my research on this topic, my prior beliefs have both been reinformed and shaken. Hearing Dr. J. Pearson's perspective definitely reinformed my knowledge. When I first started my research, I was constantly looking for empirical evidence that showed that medical mistrust is one of the biggest factors that contributes to these health disparities. But the reality is that this is likely not the case. It is most likely a combination of many interconnected institutions that reinforce a dehumanizing social experience that is impacting the physiology and health of these communities. Although it may not be a major driving factor in disparities, it is still important to address these issues and to try to find solutions to repair trust in these institutions, not just for Black and Latino communities, but for all social demographics.
stay tuned for the second half of today's podcast, consisting of my conversation with Professor Shauna K. Katari on drug use, trans identity, and the importance of community care. I think to start, I guess you want to talk a little bit about yourself and what you do and the kind of research that you're interested in. Yeah, so I am a assistant, although hopefully by the end of this month, associate professor, we'll see, but of social work and also women and gender studies. My research is in three areas. So I do work on queer and trans affirming healthcare. I do work on disability and ableism, and I do work on sexuality and sexual health, and then also looking at intersections of some of those. So disability and sexuality, trans sexual health care, those kind of things. The research I do is very much follow the community research. I consider myself a community-engaged scholar, a community scholar completely. I don't do work on my own. I do work in and with community. So sometimes that community includes my students. Sometimes it's local nonprofits. Sometimes it's just other folks in the community who are like, we need research on this. So I do a mix of qualitative, quantitative, mixed methods research. I do a lot of arts-based methods too. So photo voice, digital storytelling. I, I do a mix of research that's traditional and you do quantitative analysis of a large data set. So I've done quite a bit of research with the National Trans Discrimination Survey from 2010. And then again, the United States Trans Survey from 2015. But I also do work like with the Chosen Families paper. That was one of my doc students I work with. And we really wanted to talk about how navigating healthcare isn't as simple as do you have insurance or not, but all the pieces of it and how queer folks may have different families than family of origin or family of blood that they use to support them through that. So I know that's kind of a lot, but my research always follows the community and uses the best approach to try and be as empowering and engaging rather than positivist and condescending. That's really great. Thank you so much. Next, I just have a few questions for you. The first is wondering how you see queer and trans identity and substance use coming together in the context of queer folks navigating medical systems, or what kind of an impact do you see the label of addict or substance user meaning for queer people seeking medical care? Well, I will say at the best of times, healthcare is not great for queer and trans, specifically trans and gender diverse folks. And at the best of times, healthcare and and social care and, and mental health care is not great for people who navigate substance use. And so the intersection of healthcare for trans, gender diverse, queer, gender queer folks and folks who are using substances in a way that our society deems problematic is, of course, going to be a bit of a, pardon me for saying this, but a shit show. So I think that there's a lot of stigma against trans folks in our society, a lot of transphobia. There's a lot of stigma against substance use. I'm not a clinical social worker, but my students often bring up to me that in the DSM, even what is considered binge drinking or heavy drinking is based on supposedly gender when what they mean is sex. How many drinks is considered inappropriate is different for a male versus female, which is already problematic because it's using sex, not gender, and it's very binary specific. But it also means that a lot of our substance treatment programs are super gendered. There's a men's side and a women's side. So where do non-binary people go? Is a woman of trans experience going to be placed on the men's side or the women's side? So there's just a lot of 
complications. There's also trans folks experience high rates of transphobia in our society at every level. And so therefore are often more likely to need coping mechanisms to just survive the world. And so substance use as a coping mechanism versus substance use as a disorder. I think about even the cultural pieces of how much 10 years ago, if you told someone you use marijuana multiple times a week, cannabis, people would be like, you have a problem versus now in our society, particularly white cishet folks use cannabis all the time and it's considered natural and organic and all of that. And now we're using ketamine for depression. But five years ago, if you came into someone and said, I'm using ketamine to treat my depression that is happening because of transphobia, people would consider you an addict. And so I think it's very complicated and has a lot of layers across the micro, meso and macro segments of our society, right? So the interpersonal, the organizational, the institutional and systemic. But when I think about trans and gender diverse folks and folks who navigate substance use and substance use disorders in healthcare settings, those are some of the the feelings that come up for me. That leads kind of into my next question, which is what ways might formations of queer and trans community like Chosen Family address the needs of queer and trans people who use drugs that formal institutions of care like medical systems or social work currently do not? Well, I mean, I I think we already are seeing it in some ways in the formation of queer and trans specific AA and NA groups, which I'm not a huge fan of that, although I know it serves a lot of people very well. And so people saying, you know, AA can work for some folks, but this whole sitting talking about their higher power is not a great fit. I need to be in a space where I can talk about the only way to meet queer people is like at a club. And so how am I supposed to not be around drinking and also still find community? I think we see that in queer people and trans people creating these spaces of chosen family to navigate all sorts of things, whether it's house sharing and food insecurity support or mutual aid in different levels. And I think that all of that can translate really well to stuff around substance use, right? Of How do we support each other? Do we get pure educators, pure counselors? Do we get more queer and trans people to become social workers and work in substance use, you know, change from the inside? Do we create our own alternative spaces to do decompression work. I think we can look at disability justice models and say the folks who are most marginalized should lead us in this work rather than corporations that make money off of, you know, there's in Minnesota, a fancy institute for LGBTQ folks navigating substance use, right? But it costs a ton of money and is very, very bourgeoisie, if you will. I think it's, it's a yes and. Some of it is getting more representation in systems micro, meso, macro, so that policies are changed to be more inclusive, so that individual doctors and PAs and staff members are themselves queer and trans and so get what it means to be more inclusive and supportive. Also hearing from, you know, some people hate the term addict, some people love the term addict. And so there's no one size fits all approach, but talking to people who are both trans and substance users and saying, what do you need in this space? Do you want to come to a traditional healthcare clinic and have a specific trans group? Do you want us to build a support group in the community? Do you want a practice that happens to have lots of queer and trans patients? Like, should we build it there? The substance use is not as much of my area, but I think in the same way that I look at mental health, I look at physical health and treatment around that. I look at sexual health and testing and 
and treatment there, right? A lot of it is being the community guide us and say, what is actually you in these situations versus what do you think is useful and is not serving us? From there, and what of the questions I'll wrap up with is what advice would you have for practitioners in the field and researchers looking to build off of the strengths of queer community to create change in healthcare networks and social work as a profession? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things we know about queer community is that we are scrappy as fuck. I think about with the AIDS crisis, how many lesbians came together to care for cis gay men who are navigating this really scary thing. I think about trans folks in my life who joke that we pass around the same dollar bill to everybody because we're all supporting each other, even when we're all financially struggling. So I think learning from the fact that our communities are surviving and even thriving in the face of such societal discrimination, harassment, policies, and to say, okay, you've been doing what works, whether that's through a local hospital or a large community health system, you're having like a trans advisory board, should consider having a substance user advisory board, whether it's folks who are actively users or who went through this program previously to talk about what works. I think doing needs assessments that are targeted towards trans substance users, making sure that people are getting CEs, right? Like you might be amazing at treating substance users, but know very little about trans and genderqueer folks. And conversely, you might yourself be trans or genderqueer and feel like you've got a lockdown on gender, but I don't know as much about substance use. And so making sure you're keeping up to date on language, making sure you're keeping up to date on trainings, hiring, you know, community patient navigators to help with folks throughout this. But really, I think it's a blend of the professional plus community knowledge and recognizing that community knowledge and experience is just as valuable as a degree, right? We have to learn from each other. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of After Office Hours. Up next, you'll hear from Sinead Sheehy and several guests about how race and class impact health disparities in the United States. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to come back in two weeks for another great episode.